Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin Willis, and I have a new co-host here, Thalima Dietler. How are you doing, Thalima? I'm doing great. How are you, Martin? I said your name right. Yes. Yes. And uh, welcome. Thank and you. And real excited to have you here. And can you just give our audience just a little bit of background? You have an art background. Yes. Um, I got my degree in art history from California State University of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And I have recently moved to San Francisco. I've been in the city for almost two years now. And um, fun city, isn't it? Oh, absolutely! It's yeah. a playground for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome, and uh, we're real excited to have you here. And you'll be mostly on our art-related uh, podcast, but when other ones work out, we hope to have you here. Absolutely, I can't wait. All right. And on the line today, we have Robin Starr from Skinner Auction Gallery in Marlboro, Mass. How you doing, Robin? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me here. Sure. I said I said Marlboro, but are you in Boston and Marlboro or Marlboro? We're primarily in Marlboro. Marlboro is where the warehouse is located. So most of the specialists are in Marlboro. Most of the time, that's where most of the stuff is. I see. Uh, the only department that's housed in Boston full-time is the jewelry department. Oh, but that's most right. Most of the major sales are in Boston. Right. Now, what is your position at Skinner? I am the director of the American and European Paintings and Prints Department. Very good. And how long have you been there, and how did you get that position? That's a nice position to have there. It's pretty wonderful, and I have to say I moved up in the ranks. I started at Skinner's in 1987 at the age of three. Nice try. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, went straight out of graduate school, and I uh, was an undergrad at Bates and and, uh, majored in physics and art history, because everybody does that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then went to Williams and got my master's in medieval art history. Did you say physics in art history? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you have range. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Well, one major was for me, and one was to pay for the education. So. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. uh Yeah, I was. It was funny. I, um, you know, I came home after my sophomore year. Was at my parents' house, and I was so proud of myself. I had made the decision to major in art history. And I'd done it on my own, and I was very proud of this. And I sat my parents down and told them, and they didn't say a word. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm really excited about this. Still nothing. <laughs> and finally my father said, well, I'm afraid you're going to have to get, and I think he actually said, a real major or pay for your, oh. your own education. And oh. it turned out the real majors were physics, chemistry, biology, economics, or... Geology was my fifth choice. So you had to choose the lesser evil, I guess. Uh, yeah, so I picked the one of the five that I could actually finish on time, so I wouldn't have to take an extra year to finish. So it was physics. All right. Yeah. So um, I bet you love your job there. That's to me. It's I think Skinner is one of the best auction houses in the country. I really have always felt that way. And uh, a little company history. I knew uh, I knew of Bob. I'm not sure if I ever met. Bob Skinner, but uh, I knew one thing. He was a real go-getter, 
worked really hard. Uh, one of the, I think he was the first person to ever have a computer system in an auction gallery. Um, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, he suffered a heart attack in 1984, and uh, he died. But um, he started that beautiful company and had a great vision, and I think the vision has continued. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, he started out as uh, an engineer for Raytheon. Right. And oh. he, unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of knowing him either. Um, but he just decided that wasn't for him, and he wanted to do something else. And he was interested in antiques, but didn't have a you know background in it. But he started dealing in antiques, and you know the story goes that Nancy, uh, his wife, would come home from buying the groceries and find her dining table missing. <laughs> and I grew up like that. <laughs> Don't worry, honey. Though he'd say, I'll, "I'll get us something much nicer." Uh. <laughs> so he just sort of started very casually, and. You know, he's a, he was a really interesting guy because, on the one hand, he, he, he was such a personable guy. He could talk to any about, anybody about anything. So he could talk to a neophyte coming under the tent, because he started out his auction under a tent. Right. Uh, and uh -huh. explain the auction process and how to bid and, and what the whole thing is about. But he could also speak to the antique dealers and explain the difference between a Chippendale... Uh, serpentine bureau made in Boston or Philadelphia, so he could talk to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, at the same time, he had this really creative, scientific bent. So he was he was thinking in terms of being gregarious and outgoing with people. He was a real people person. But at the same time, he didn't want to be that sort of typical New England mom and pop dream at all. So he was. He was watching what the people around him were doing, but he was also going down to New York and seeing what those places were doing. Sort of oh, taking the best of both worlds. And I think that's part of what makes Skinner's unique, is that, you know, we tried very hard to be open to everybody. We try to be very approachable and personable. And yet we also offer a lot of the things that some of the, the really huge houses offer. So we're sort of an interesting dichotomy, sort of like, Bob mm -hmm. Skinner's background. Yeah. Uh, while, we're, while we're on uh, Bob Skinner, I just want to tell you a story that I heard back in about like 1982 or something, or around 1980. There was, uh, uh, Bob got a call, and it sounded really, really good at an ad address in Manhattan. And he made the trip all the way down to Manhattan, and he stood on an empty lot, and uh, Dick Withington showed up, and I think Bob Smith showed up. And in other words, all these people <laughs> from major auction houses were called on a phantom call in the middle of New York City, and they all had a good laugh and had lunch together. <laughs> I've heard that story. Oh, as you well. have heard it? Yeah. yeah. Funny, huh? Yeah. Uh, now, um, we both have some questions for you, but first of all, I wanted to ask um, um, I know someone that works there. Uh, very well. I worked with her. She's a wonderful person, Kathy Wong, and, and you get the pleasure to work with her now. Mm -hmm. um, now, I remember her telling me about the big move you made from Bolton to Marlboro, and what was that like with such an auction house? It actually went remarkably smoothly. Uh, we, you know, we had had the space in Bolton. Bob and Nancy Skinner started in Bolton, and when Bob decided to expand, he built uh, our former building on his land. And it was a great spot, and you know, in the middle of the woods, it was beautiful. I think it was, it was yes. Small. 
You, you called that place small to, to me. <laughs> I thought that place well, was huge. <laughs> it ended up being small. It mm-hmm. ended up being small enough that we actually had three off-site warehouses. Oh, wow. Yeah, plus the place, of course, in Boston where we have many of our sales. And so the logistics of trying to go between Bolton, off-site warehouses, plural, and Boston were just crazy. And so basically what we did was we consolidated the three warehouses and Bolton into one space in our new Marlboro space. And it's just, it's a much better space. It's, we're we're all together under the one roof. And, you know, back in the day when I first started, one of my favorite things was being able to go through the bins and see what some of the other departments had. I mean, I knew Mm -hmm. about paintings, but I didn't know much about American decorative arts or Asian furniture or musical instruments. Mm -hmm. And, when we were all together in Bolton, when we were still a little smaller, you could see all of those things, and you could see all of the previews, and you know, somebody would come back from a house call or come in from the lobby with some fantastic you know, Ming Dynasty ceramic piece, and they would say, look what I just got, and we'd all sort of <laughs> gather around and enjoy it. And when we grew and had to have multiple warehouses, we lost that. Hmm. You know, we might not see mm-hmm. certain colleagues for weeks at a time. Wow, because they were cataloging them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And now that we're back together, now we get to see those things again. We get to learn from each other much more so. And, of course, we're handling the objects much less. They're not getting moved around, which sure. is better for the objects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a nice system. It's a really it's, it's a really great setup, and we're really very pleased with it. When right. did this merge happen? We moved everything in January of 2009. Mm-hmm. So... So we had had all of these different locations uh, that, you know, one warehouse became two, became three. And we so we consolidated everything in Marlboro in late January of 2009. And it was an interesting week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got that. through the move very well. And, uh, you know, now that we're in firmly ensconced in our new space, it's, it's terrific. Now, I've been to auctions in both Boston and in uh, uh, Bolton. And what is the difference? Be- how do you decide which auction? I know you have jewelry auctions in Boston. I remember that, and, and I went to a painting auction there. But what do you, how do you decide which auctions are held in Marlboro compared to Boston? Well, it tends to be the major sales that are in Boston. Uh, so the major painting sales, Americana sales, uh, European decorative arts, musical instruments, wine. So the high-end sales, they are in Boston, are more decorative sales, such as our, our uh, discovery sales. Those are out in the Marlboro space. Uh, you know, the discovery sales are, they're great fun. You never know what you're going to see in them. Mm-hmm. They have furniture and paintings and decorative arts and rugs, and sometimes they have uh, ancient artifacts or musical instruments or other things, uh, but they're really sort of a mixed bag, and they're meant to be more decorative and and they bring in a more local audience for the most part. I mean, we have lots of people bidding online, uh, but the people who come in tend to be local. And so it works very well to have more local people driving to Marlboro. But what Boston gives us is the chance for people who are flying over from London, coming from Beijing, oh, sure. coming from New York. Uh, they can just fly right in or take the train in wherever they're coming from. And it's just a much easier spot for most people to get to. So for the major sales where we're attracting bidders from much longer distances, we like to have those sales in Boston. Now, Robin, can you tell us how many people work for Skinner and quickly go through the different uh, departments? Sure. We have about 70 people 
who are out in the Marlboro office, and that includes uh, all of the department heads and specialists, obviously the paintings department, my personal favorite, <laughs> uh, but the Americana department, European decorative arts, the Asian art department, we have toys and dolls, wines, uh, 20th century design, musical instruments, uh, the discovery department, uh, rugs, I mean, we have a whole huge, broad gamut of things that we that we handle. Mm-hmm. And you so even have a Judaica department now. We so. have a Judaica department as well. Uh, so I mean, we have all sorts of things uh, going on. And then in Boston, Boston has just the jewelry department, uh, but that has a full-time staff of about ten people, including the jewelry department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also do have a lot of people who come in. Uh, you know, we need extra staff when the auction season is sort of at its height to help set up and man all of the previews and the auctions. So we have uh, auction assistants who come in uh, as well, and we have a whole sort of team of those people who are on a rotating basis. Wow. That's great. Where do you do your consignments from, and who buys from Skinner? Everyone is the short answer to both of those questions. That's easy. The okay, move on. Come from, they come from local collectors and collectors far away who are, upgrading or changing their collecting interests. They come from uh, collecting institutions that are, you know, maybe changing their mission or um, sometimes, unfortunately, looking to raise capital. They come from dealers who want to turn over uh, stock. They come from estates. Uh, so they're coming from near and far. And our buyers are very much the same. We have young collectors who are just starting out. I mean, that's one of the great things about those discovery mm-hmm. sales is you don't have to have a huge budget to, to bid at auction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have old-time collectors and, again, museums and collecting institutions and dealers, so they're really, people are coming from everywhere. And, you know, now in particular, we have bidders from all around the world with all of the options of phone bidding and left bidding and, and live bidding online. So we're getting right. people from around the world. Yes. Did I see, I think I saw something, an Asian piece sold really high there about a year ago. Was it a screen or something? Am I getting that right? We had uh, we had a, a really hot market for the Asian department. So we've had screens do we, incredibly yeah. well. We've had a group of jades that did stupendously well. Uh, right now, the Asian market is just hot. The Chinese economy is, is yes. doing well in particular. Uh, so we have a lot of buyers who are interested in and collecting those sorts of things, uh, you know, furniture and small objects, and and those things many times are going back to China. And exactly. Right now, that is the hot market, and that's the department that's really taking off these days. They're that's doing right. A great job. Yes, yes. But I remember before the whole thing took off, uh, you had a piece there that did just fly, and I forget exactly what it was. Um, and I know that's not your department, but um, I think it was about a year and a half ago. I, I read something about it. Please tell us the story about the record Fitzhugh Lane painting. I will, and uh, but first I have to ask you, which one do you mean? Well, I know that you consistently set records, but let's talk about... The um, one that sold for $5.5 million. Yeah, that's the big one. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the most exciting one. Um, and it, I have to say, each one sort of brought on the next, which was one of the things yeah. that was really terrific about the whole series. Works like uh, that. The, the one you're referring to sold in 2004, and that was called Manchester Harbor, mm-hmm. and was right from the height of Fitzhenry or Fitzhugh Lane's uh, powers, 1853. 
he, I'm sure you already know the story, but he was known, and I still call him, I'm old school, I still call him Fitzhugh Lane, uh, but it was discovered through uh, records at the Cape Ann Historic Society, amongst other places, that his actual name was Fitzhenry Lane. Uh, so all of us old schoolers still trip over his name when we get to Fitzhenry Lane. Uh, so I still do that myself, I have to admit. Uh, but this picture came in from a family that uh, they had actually inherited the piece, and the piece could be traced all the way back to the family that owned it when it was shown at the Boston Athenaeum in the 1850s. Wow. So not long after nice. it was painted. And the family, this particular branch of the family had moved to the West Coast. But they knew what they had, and they also knew that we had set several records with Fitzhenry Lane's work, and so they contacted us and said, we have this wonderful view of Manchester Harbor, and I don't suppose you'd be interesting to come, to, you know, to, enough to come out to the West Coast and take a peek, would you? And <laughs> yes, Tomorrow. Yes, would indeed, and so they, they gave it to us since we had done so well in the past with, with Lane's work. Now, have you ever had um, Buttersworth paintings? Uh, they do really well. I mean, you've had those before, haven't you? We've had those as well, and we do very well with marine art uh, mm -hmm. in general. We uh, have had certainly Buttersworth and William Bradford. As a matter of fact, we have a oh. wonderful William Bradford coming up in our next Americana sale. Hmm. And uh, it's a ship portrait from New Bedford, and just a, a stupendous example of his work. So that should be exciting. That's on March the 6th. And, wow. uh, yeah, so we see a lot of marine art. And... You know, Skinner's began really with uh, Americana, with American furniture and decorative arts and marine art, and that was really what Bob was most interested in. Hmm. And that's really where he made his reputation first. So when you think of Skinner, a lot of people still think back to, you know, Bob's day, and, and that's a place we've always traditionally done very well. Mm -hmm. Speaking about American history, can you tell us a little bit about the copy of the Declaration of Independence that sold for... Six hundred and ninety-three thousand. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, I don't know much about how it was discovered, but I know the owners had contacted us, and it was uh, it was not one of the original, you know, thirteen that was signed, but That's it right. was uh, a broadside copy that was published shortly after the signing of, of the Declaration of Independence, so mm -hmm. that. You know, all of the colonists could know what the Declaration actually declared, and it was one of those very early copies. And, you know, they do come up every now and again, but they're exceedingly rare. And mm -hmm. what possible document could be more important to American history mm -hmm. than that? Yeah. So when those do come up, they garner incredible interest. Yes. Now that we're speaking about the top sales, would you be able to share a story of one of the um, most valued pieces that have come through Skinner's? One of the most valued pieces. I mean, there. Are, I mean, obviously the the Manchester Harbor Fitzhenry Lane is is the top lot that we've sold. But we've been. I mean, we're so lucky to see so many things. That's part of the reason this job is so terrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the pieces that I love was an Irving Ramsey Wilde that we sold uh, last May. And it was in a house, and it was one of my colleagues, Steve Fletcher, who was actually at the house. And they were thinking about downsizing a little bit and had all sorts of things. They had some paintings and furniture and uh, ceramics and other things. And uh, Steve had been at the house and looking around, and he went upstairs to check on a couple of things. Uh, the family didn't feel there was much upstairs, but, you know, there were one or two things. Go, go and take a look, please, if you don't mind. 
And Steve went up to the top of the stairs, and there near the top of the stairs was a painting of uh, a young woman in sort of an off-white shirt dress and with billowing skirts, and she was walking along uh, a beach on sort of a blustery-looking day. And Steve, hmm. Steve, who has an incredible eye, he just, he just sees things, he just knows instantly that they're terrific. And he saw this painting and sort of did a double take and got up close to it, and it was signed. It was by Irving Ramsey Weil. Hmm. And, and he sort of exclaimed, oh, my goodness, this is a terrific <laughs> picture. Is this something you wanted me to look at? And the family was like, oh, no, no. And it was the mother who was sort of leading him around, and, and she said, oh, no, my daughter really loves that. We, we wouldn't want to sell that. Heard that story. And Steve <laughs> said, well, are, are you certain? It's, you know, it's probably a $50,000 picture. And the woman said, what? That's not possible. <laughs> no wonder your daughter likes it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and she said, she went on to say, you know, we've had several other people through here, antique dealers through here looking around, and no one's even batted an eye at that picture. Mm-hmm. Are you certain? Mm-hmm. And indeed, he was certain. And it brought a little more than his estimate. It brought about $400,000 plus <laughs> juice. Uh, and it was just, it was a great little picture. And Wiles was known for painting Two things. He was known for painting beach scenes on Long Island, and he was known for painting pictures of beautiful women. This had both. Wow. And, of course, it had one other very special thing. It, it had been hidden away for decades in a private house. Uh, so it was mm-hmm. absolutely fresh to the market. That's always nice. People, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what people want, are these sort of hidden gems that suddenly come out of nowhere, you know, as though they've sort of just poofed into the air. Uh, like magic, and that's exactly what this had going for it. Right. I have a I have a question for you. Uh, I know when I was in New England that when I had a painting, no one wanted it touched, like you're just talking about. They wanted, mm-hmm. if it needed restoration, they wanted their own restorer to restore it. Um, on the West Coast, I don't see much of it. With California paintings, it doesn't seem to really matter as much. Is it still like that back there? It is. Uh, you know, everybody thinks of art conservation as a science, and it is, but it's a very subjective science. I mean, how clean is clean? Do you take off most of the grime? Do you take off every last bit and maybe risk taking off a glaze or two as mm. well? When you retouch, do you retouch so that the retouch is invisible to the eye, so that it's only visible when you get up close? There are a lot of decisions to be made about how you approach things, and I mean, let's face it, we, we crush the old Yankees. We have strong opinions, and darn it, we know we're always right. That's so right. So <laughs> it's usually best to not touch things. That's especially true, I think, for American works. Uh, you know, people who have been collecting Americana and American paintings and furniture for decades, they really don't want things touched. I think, to wildly oversimplify, many of the European buyers are more used to things having been conserved or restored, mm-hmm. and I think they're a little bit more laissez-faire about that sort of thing. But we rarely recommend that somebody have something cleaned or conserved before it, it comes to market. We, we find, frankly, you know, if we were to have taken that Irving Ramsey Wiles and had it cleaned, uh, we still would have been very clear that, oh, it came out of a private house where it's been for decades. But you know, when you, when you gussy things up for auction, people can tell. And it also loses that sense of having been hidden away. It's mm-hmm. even though people know that what we're telling them is true, it just 
it doesn't ring as true when you've gone ahead and cleaned something. Mm -hmm. And so why do it? Why take away that, you know, if you can have a luster of time, uh, why take that away? So we generally don't. Now, is there an exception to that, like to say if something has a tear in it, or you to just let that let it go the way it is? If something is in horrendous condition, we'll certainly consider doing something with it. We had... Mm -hmm. um, we had a Rembrandt print come in, oh, this is a long time ago now, eight, ten years maybe, and it was uh, the large plate of Rembrandt's um, three crosses, and there were a number of states, I think there are maybe six or seven states of that print. Was this an and early this state? This is the third state. Mm. And wow. so it's, you know, very clearly it's relatively rare, mm -hmm. and, you know, there were multiple states made afterwards, so of course this was a, a period impression, and the piece was absolutely riddled with mold wow. so much so that you were pretty certain when you looked at it closely with a loop that it really was a period impression and not a photogravure of some kind but it was so covered with mold it was hard even to tell that so in that case we decided it just made infinitely more sense to have the mold properly removed sure. and to, to show it so that it could really shine at auction and we've, we've done other repairs with, with things that have had really tough issues, uh, you know, large-scale tears, tears in uh, more vital places within a composition. But, for instance, the, the Marvin cone that we had in the January sale, we hemmed and hawed, and then we decided not to touch it. It had a number of punctures and losses, but those were all sort of near the edges of the composition. And, again, this is another picture that had been in private hands virtually since it was painted. Uh, it had been in the Figgy family, which is a very important Iowa family, and had descended through the family and had been left for the last five to ten years in the back of a closet, <laughs> which is probably how it got the punctures, unfortunately. <laughs> and we decided that although the punctures were certainly a condition issue that needed to be addressed, we, we felt after debating it between our, ourselves that yeah, we should wait on this and, and let the buyer decide, and the piece did very well. Hmm. It brought $100,000 plus, uh, plus buyer's premium, so it did extremely well, and, and that's where it should have gone in its present condition. Mm -hmm. Now, in what ways has the market climate changed prices of art at auction? Um, in other words, do you see certain pieces insulated and doing better than ever, or is there a segment of the market that is suffering? Uh, We've found that the great things continue to do great. There is mm -hmm. no change in that. Uh, mm -hmm. Those fresh, wonderful things, those are the things people want to go ahead and spend their money on. Sure. Uh, what we're finding is sluggish, uh, mm -hmm. is the stuff at the bottom of the barrel. The sure. low-end, more decorative items, they're a tough sell. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2007, Somebody somewhere was always looking for something, right. something decorative for a, you know, a vacation house, uh, some low-end decorative things to put into their shop. Uh, and so even the low-end decorative things were selling really very well. Yes, uh, I remember those days. Yeah, <laughs> with longing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Although I, as, as much as everybody being more responsible annoys me a little bit, uh, it's actually better for the art market ultimately. Right now when people are buying... They're buying because this is really what they want. They're not going out and buying, say, ten objects. They're concentrating their time and their efforts on five. But they're mm. choosing well, and they're mm -hmm. choosing quality. They're choosing 
the really strong pieces that deserve the attention. And I can't fault that. You know, I, I can't get upset about the lesser things not selling because, you know, what always seems to happen as we ebb and flow through the highs and lows of the market is as the market starts to climb back up, things that really don't deserve to bring the prices they're bringing continue to escalate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, nobody likes a correction in the market, but it's not all bad for the market. That's and interesting. as long as the great things keep bringing great money, I, I can't complain. That, that's an interesting take on that that I haven't heard yet. And that must mean also, I know a lot of auction houses are a lot more fussy than they used to be with what they take in. Are people asking for reserves more than ever because they're cautious? Not necessarily. Um, you know, the, the people who are actually, to generalize, of course, the people who are actually asking for reserves more vigorously are the people, and I'm happy to say this, this number, this group is declining, uh, are the people who find themselves in the position where they really need to sell to raise some capital. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And the people who are finding themselves in that position, they tend to be bringing in the more decorative things anyway. Because, you know, if you have to, if you're sort of put in a position where you're forced to sell part of your collection, well, who wants to sell their stellar pieces? You're going to sell the lesser things first. Right. And that's what people tend to do. But, of course, those are the very things that aren't selling well. Yes. And, you know, our policy, if, if we're going to have to give a consigner bad news, we'd rather do it at the beginning. Uh, um, I we agree. We don't want someone to get bad news after something is sold when it's too late to do anything about it. So if somebody brings something in that just, well, it's going to be a tough sell. It's just not going to bring much. And, gee, you know, I understand you paid 5000 for it, four years ago, but the likelihood we're going to get that is very small, and I think three is probably a more realistic estimate and possibly even still a little aggressive. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd rather say that at the time of consignment. Sure. And it tends to be those lower-end people who are, you know, they really need the money. Those are the people who tend to want reserves. People yes. who are making changes mm-hmm. because of other aspects of their lives, changing their collecting interests, changing where they're living. Um, those sorts of people, they're not forced into it. They're doing this because this is what is good for them, not because this is what is good for their creditors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those people, the people who are used to auction, they understand how it works. You know, it's a very different market than, than, a, a, than going through a dealer. With a dealer, the dealer says, this is what I'm going to get you, which feels so much safer. Mm-hmm. And yet, it might take the dealer a day to sell it, years, a month, <laughs> or a year, or yeah. it may never happen. That's right. And with auction, the, the good and bad news is, unless you don't have two people who fall in love with the object, you know that object is going to sell on the day of that auction. Mm-hmm. But of course, what you don't know is exactly what it's going to bring. Are we going to have a great evening? Is it going to take off and be a blockbuster? Or is it going to be... A little less exciting to watch. Right. It's just going to sort of eke out to the estimate, and I mean that's. But that again is the whole reason people sell through auction and buy through auction. There are deals to be had. There are also things you're going to have to, you know, give up your right arm to buy. Right. Uh, And that's that's why people go and why people sit and watch when they're only interested in bidding in one thing. Uh, That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. There is a saying something like an auction puts people at a point of decision. 
And I think, you know, um, when people have to fight with their money over something good, then that's a really good thing for the uh, seller and the auction house. Exactly. I was running my auctions north of you in Portsmouth for many, many years, my father before me, and there was a slump in the 1990s, and instead of people selling things, everyone hung on to the merchandise. What's, what's happening right now? of that and we were we were sort of bracing for that and especially in 2009 and mm -hmm. and sort of thinking oh boy here we go here comes the ride and we didn't find you know great things falling out of the sky like we did in 2007 and yes you know it, it's going to be a long time until 2007 comes rolling back <laughs> uh, but we actually found a lot of things coming in and you know unfortunately some of those were from people who had to sell uh, but you know, I have to say that while it, it didn't have the vigor that we'd had in the market before, it kept on going, and we were pleasantly surprised to see how many things were coming in. And the other thing that we have really going for us at Skinner's is because we have so many different departments, you know, when one department is having, you know, a tough season, another department might be taking off. So as the market, for instance, really started to, to, to crash, the jewelry department was going gangbusters. <laughs> and, you know, the, the beauty of the jewelry department is, yes, you're selling objects of beauty, but you're also selling objects with inherent value, platinum, gold, diamonds, sapphires. These are objects that are not just beautiful, but they have inherent value. I mean, mm -hmm. I would argue that a life without art is just not a life worth living. But when you are in an economic downturn and you have to decide, mortgage or painting, okay, if you pick mortgage, I can't really blame you. But you can mm -hmm. sort of rationalize some buying of jewelry at that time because it has inherent value. Mm -hmm. uh, so they did tremendously well. And even now, uh, you know, most of our sales are doing extremely well right now. But, you know, if, if any of the rest of this, the departments compare themselves to the Asian department, we feel like a bunch <laughs> of slackers. I mean, right now, that is the hot thing. And it's hot with American collectors, but again, it's extremely hot with overseas collectors. And, sure. you know, now that we're able to reach these collectors, the, the things are just going gangbusters. And we're finding, you know, people are bidding online. We're having people fly over from, um, you know, South, Southeast Asia in particular mm -hmm. to come and bid live and in person. And it's just a market that's going crazy right now, crazy in the way that, you know, I mean, you're thinking sort of Asian art market bubble. I mean, it's just phenomenal how well these things are doing. Yes. Ride the wave while it's here because it, it too shall change. It, of course <laughs> it will. And that's, I mean, that's the nature of what we do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as that particular wave sort of starts to crash against the beach, another one is going to be building a little further out to sea, and who knows what it will be. I mean, it, hmm. it could be, you know, musical instruments could suddenly get hot. Uh, mm -hmm. Victorian furniture could come back into style. I mean, there's, who knows what's going to be next? Mm -hmm. and, and we feel changes, you know, even in smaller ways uh, from, from sale to sale in the paintings department. We'll go through two or three sales where, you know, Italian 19th century genre pictures are just going gangbusters. And then we'll suddenly have a sale where we have, oh, we have, we've got some great Italian pictures. And suddenly... We're sort of thinking to ourselves, where did everybody go? Nobody's on those. Now they want British paintings from the early 20th century. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. We can change mental gears. And, and it's, 
each couple of, of sales, we see sort of the trends shifting a little bit and mixing up a little bit. And it's, it's, it's interesting to watch and sort of almost impossible to predict because you sort of never know, all right, what's going to happen this way, this week? What's, what's new? Uh, what's in? What's out? So mm-hmm. it's really it's interesting to, to watch and to try to guess. <laughs> I really like the way that the other departments help each other out during the bad economy. What other ways do you guys help get through the slump at Skinner's? Well, you know, we all work together with each other. So, uh, you know, I'm, obviously my first focus is on the paintings department because since that's my, you know, since I run it. Uh, but I'm also an auctioneer, and I'm selling. I might sell, of course, my own sale, but I'm also going to help sell a discovery sale. I'm going to help sell a 20th century auction. So mm-hmm. I'm doing all sorts of kinds of sales. And, um, you know, Kathy Wong, who you mentioned, who's terrific, by the way. Yes. Uh, she might be you know, cataloging for the morning for a paintings auction, but then might head into Boston for the afternoon to help do telephone bidding for, for a Tuesday afternoon jewelry sale. So mm-hmm. we all work to help each department out. We do a lot of sort of co-researching. I mean, there are a lot of things that fall, you know, between departments. Uh, you know, we have a books and manuscripts department uh, that's doing very well and that is uh, right now looking to expand. And... But we have things that fall sort of between. We get uh, artist books, books made by uh, great artists that oh, yes. aren't really, you know, they're mm-hmm. not first editions of a famous novel. They are books, maybe illustrated books of poetry or stories. And it might be a book illustrated by Max Ernst or Pablo Picasso. Mm-hmm. Well, is that a book or is that a print? Right. And it falls into this sort of middle ground. So. For instance, uh, a year ago, not just past, not just past January, but a year ago, January, we had a wonderful collection of artist books come in, late 19th and and really through the the most of the 20th century, and so we sat down, uh, myself and Stuart Whitehurst, who runs the book department, and and sort of talked about, well, you know, okay, what do we have here, and where are these really going to do their best? Are they going to do more for our consigner in a book sale or better in a print sale. And we decided to put the majority of them into a print auction where they did extremely well. Hmm. Uh, and we do a lot of give and take. And, you know, I mean, that's again, that's part of what makes, you know, working with Skinner's, whether that's as an employee or as a consigner or bidder, part of what makes it a great place to work because there's really an atmosphere of camaraderie, of working with people, um, and it's, it's one of the reasons so many of us stick around so long. Now, I know that you mentioned a lot of things about the past, but moving on to the future, what do you think the future is going to be with the Internet involved in auctions? And do you see it creating more collectors globally? I don't know if the Internet on its own is going to create more collectors. Uh, I, I don't think it can do it single-handedly. But I, I think certainly right now the trend is going in the direction I like. Uh, you know, between the Internet and, uh, you know, shows about antique pickers and antique appraisers, mm-hmm. right now the interest is clearly there. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps everybody. But what we've certainly too. found is with Internet bidding, we're reaching people in places that, you know, we had never dreamed of reaching mm-hmm. even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Asian sales, again, are a perfect example. We have bidders 
who are bidding with us from you know remote locations in China, in in South Korea, in Japan. Uh, we have people who are bidding with us in painting sales from you know North Africa and the Middle East, as well as all over Europe. We have people coming just from everywhere to bid. And people who 10 years ago hadn't even heard of us, and now they're finding us on the Internet and they're able to, to compete with us. So I think it's not necessarily going to make that many more people on the planet collectors, but it makes the world that much smaller in a good way. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely wonderful mm -hmm. and very informative, and we really enjoyed having you for a guest today. And uh, Robin, why don't you go ahead and give out Skinner's uh, website address, please? Uh, you can reach us on the web at SkinnerInc.com at SkinnerInc.com. Great. And this is Martin Willis with the Lima Dietler and Robin Starr, and we're all signing off. Yay. 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 listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember to check out our other podcasts at antiqueauctionforum.com.